following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopemd.com. One other just quick clarification. Um, I had some, some members tell me this weekend they, uh, in and out this summer, um, last time they showed up to church, I was on vacation, and then they got news that there was a new pastor coming into town. Um, so we have just hired an additional pastor. The news of my demise has been greatly exaggerated, um, but if you have not gotten to know Mike and Mary Habercorn and their family, please do so. Okay, we get to talk more about what we just did actually this morning um, in ordaining these officers. And we're going to actually talk about this through a passage in Colossians, at the end of Colossians here. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to read actually the very last portion of Colossians, chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 2. Follow along with me in your own Bible or on the screen above. Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell, of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for um, your word. We're grateful that you are a God who has not hidden himself, but has actually come to reveal himself to us. So we ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us today. Through your word, by the power of your spirit, open our hearts and our eyes and our ears that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I received um, a text from a friend the other day, uh, a good friend of mine who 
the night before school started for his children had prayed with his younger son about the starting of school. And you know how sometimes you'll hit the wrong button on your phone and you can hit that voice-to-text thing, right, where it'll let you uh, dictate to your phone? Well, for some reason, that button had gotten hit inadvertently on his phone, and his phone was recording this prayer and translating it to text, and he sent me that translation. For your soulmate, in one says, we love you, Lord of my screenplay, that would be the closing with the closing prayer in film. Thank you for the wire, preparing him up to this point to perform to the best of me a joy classrooms that you'll give him a minute. Continue equip him as you are here to help your buyers, and you got here by him. Praise him and Lee, a great friend you put on humility. Each day would be drawn to help because I was sweet aroma for fun, Hewitt, working hard in school and applying self. Thank you for my son family. That's a pretty fantastic prayer, isn't it? Now, maybe what we did earlier in the service sounded to you a little bit like that garbled up prayer. Like if you're new to Presbyterianism or if you're new to the church in general, maybe what we were doing before in ordaining and installing officers sounded just as crazy as that weird prayer there. So I think actually Paul helps us in this passage from Colossians 4, a passage that helps us figure out what it means to build the church up And I think by proxy also helps us understand the role of officers in that. What are officers called to do? And here's the thing, is that they are called to lead God's church. And from this passage, a few of the things that we see that they're called to do is to lead in prayer, to lead us in community, and to lead us in mission. So we're going to talk about those three things this morning, prayer, community, and mission. Let's look first at this idea that officers lead us in prayer. Verse 2 and 3, the very first ones that we read, listen to these again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on the count of which I'm in prison. Now, I don't know if you picked all this up in real time, but actually Paul just stuffs those couple of verses with a ton of amazing information about prayer that let us know not only how our officers are called to lead in prayer, but really the elements of prayer in general. He says that prayer is constant, expectant, thankful, missional, and communal. Constant, expectant, thankful, missional, and communal. Let me just go through those really quickly. First of all, constant. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. What Paul is saying is that our prayer lives should be regular. The best way to order your prayer life is to order it regularly. Regular daily time spent in prayer. Paul is really talking less about the fervor in which we approach God in prayer and more about the regularity of it, the steadfastness of it. This is a great time for me to just encourage you that there are some very basic things that we can do. If you spend 15 minutes every morning in prayer, it will radically change your prayer life. So that's the steadfast part. What about expectant? He says being watchful in prayer. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? What does it mean to be watchful in prayer? Well, I think it really means that we are forward-looking in our prayers, and we are expectantly waiting on God to answer them. You know, 
the times that you've watched maybe your favorite sporting event, when you see Michael Jordan come in and it's the last 14 seconds of the game and the game is tied, you are expecting something amazing to happen, right? Or when you invite your friend over who is the funniest friend you have and you're just kind of expecting something fun is going to happen tonight. I'm inviting this person over and we are going to be rolling in laughter because that person is going to get us rolling in laughter. That's the same way that we're called actually to pray. Forward-looking, expectant prayer, waiting on God to do what he says he's going to do. But, of course, the next thing, thankful prayer, goes hand in hand with it. Because we can be forward-looking in prayer because we also are backward-looking in prayer. We're thankful for what God has done, which enables us to be expectant about what he is going to do. When the train always gets to the station on time, you expect that it's going to get to the station on time the next time you take it. And so we spend time thanking God for what he's doing, recalling his faithfulness so that it can actually even build expectation in us. Next, Paul says that it's not only forward-looking and backward-looking, expectant and thankful, but also communal. We are supposed to pray for each other. Paul is writing to the church, and he says, pray for us. He wants the church to pray for them. And then as we read later on in this passage, right, especially about Epaphras, what does Paul tell us about Epaphras? Listen to this again. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He's always working hard for them in their prayers, right? That's what we should do for one another. And then finally, our prayer is to be missional. What Paul asks for prayer about is that God would open up a door for his word. It is actually helpful to realize that Paul does not ask for the door to be opened for them. He asks that the door might be opened for the word of God to come and do what the word of God does, for the lion to be uncaged and go and do what lions do. Friends, I want you to know that your officers do this for you. We actually gather every Tuesday morning, very early in the morning, by the way, and we pray for you. We have a list of prayer requests that you filled out. We have a list of needs in our church that we go through, and we have a roster of all of the regular attenders in our church, and we go through that roster, and we go through those needs, and we pray for you, and we ask God to go to work. We also ask him to go to work, opening even up doors for his word to go to work in your lives and through you in the lives of your neighbors. Your officers love to pray for you and love to lead you in doing so. All right, let's look at the next piece. Officers not only lead in prayer, they lead in community. For this, we're going to look actually kind of at that last section uh, that we read. I'm not going to read it all again for you, but it's probably one of those places in the Bible that you're prone to skip. I am. You get to the end of one of these letters, one of these epistles, and it's just the end of the letter that's usually filled with, say hi to so-and-so, and tell that guy to bring me a blanket next time he comes, right? And it's all the stuff that we feel like is just kind of filler at the end, filled with all of these other people who we've never really heard of before. But to skip that actually would really do us a disservice, because what's so important about that long list of other people 
is exactly that. It's other people. And God has actually created a community to worship Him, a body to worship Him, a diverse community to come and gather before Him with Jesus as the head. In fact, that diversity is reflected even in what we did earlier this morning. We believe in a plurality of leadership. We ordained and installed three deacons because we want to have a team approach these things. And it's even more important, I think, when we talk about elders because we want a plurality of leadership in the church. There needs to be those kind of checks and balances. There needs to be that kind of accountability. We want to have multiple voices in the room so that we actually can lead you, Christ's body, well. That plurality of elders is really important to us. But it's also interesting here, isn't it, that there is a plurality within the rest of the body too, not just in the leadership. I mean, this is actually a really diverse list of people. There are slaves and free people. Onesimus, one of those guys mentioned, is actually a former slave. There are Jews and Gentiles, and there are men and women, which, by the way, probably would have been the three biggest dividing lines in the ancient world there. Jew, Gentile, slave and free, man and woman. And the church that we see here is combined with all of them. It is incredibly beautiful and diverse place. They're meeting in each other's homes. They're each fulfilling their calling in their own vocation. They are actually getting along and communicating with other churches too. Did you hear that part? They are together a broad and diverse group of people. And the job of the elders and the deacons in this church and in every church, we believe, is to lead that diverse group of people in helping shape their hearts to love Jesus more. Let me just say that again. The primary job of those who are leading you is actually a job of formation, a job of shaping, of molding. I want to read you actually a fairly large excerpt from an article that came out this, this last week, or maybe it was the week before, by David Brooks. This is from The Atlantic. It's called, uh, How Did America Get So Mean? Here's what David Brooks writes. Over the past few years in our country, different social observers have offered different stories to explain the rise of hatred, anxiety, and despair in our country. There's the technology story. Social media is driving us all crazy. The sociology story. We've stopped participating in community, organi community organizations and we're more isolated because of it. There's the demography story. America, long a white-dominated nation, is becoming a much more diverse country and a change that, hasn't, that has millions of white Americans in a panic. There's the economy story. High levels of economic inequality and insecurity have left people afraid, alienated, and pessimistic. And I agree to an extent with all of these stories, but I don't think any of them is the deepest one. Sure, social media has bad effects, but it's everywhere around the globe, and the mental health crisis is not. Also, the rise of despair and hatred has engulfed a lot of people who are not on social media. Economic inequality is real but it doesn't fully explain this level of social and emotional breakdown. The sociologists are right that we're more isolated, but why? What values lead us to choose lifestyles that make us lonely and miserable? 
The most important story about why Americans have become sad and alienated and rude, I believe, is also the simplest. We inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat one another with kindness and consideration. Our society has become one in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. In a healthy society, a web of institutions, families, schools, religious groups, community organizations, and workplaces help form a people into, into kind and responsible citizens, the sort of people who show up for one another. But we live in a society that is terrible at moral formation. He goes on to talk about the role of the church in moral formation here. He says, mere religious faith doesn't always make people morally good, but living in a community, orienting your heart towards some transcendent love, basing your value system on concern for the underserved, those things tend to. Friends, the officers in your church are ordained and installed and in place to do the job of helping to shape you individually and community, to orient your heart toward the transcendent love of Jesus, to orient your heart away from self and toward others, to bring you in community with one another that you might be changed. That's our job. Let me move on to the third piece then, is that our elders are also called to lead in mission. What do I mean by that? Well, verses 5 and 6 actually tell us that. Paul says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He's talking about how Christians are supposed to interact with those outside the church. And the two major categories he gives us are wise and winsome. That our attitude toward those outside the church should be both wise and winsome. By wise, he means that we are meant to actually engage in the process of discernment in our culture, in the place that we are. So it's helpful for you to actually know what is it that makes the people of New Braunfels tick? What is it, what is it that makes your unchristian friends or your non-Christian friends, what makes them go? What makes them think? What do they live for? What do they understand as the good life? How are we to wisely then approach our culture and the people around us understanding what they hold dear? That's part of wisdom. That's part of us engaging those around us in wisdom. But we have to do it winsomely. Paul says to be gracious in our speech, seasoned with salt. So yes, our, our speech is supposed to be salty, right? We're supposed to use salty language with our friends and neighbors. Probably not in the way that you're thinking. Salt, of course, is a flavor enhancer, isn't it? It makes everything taste better. And speech that is seasoned with salt is warm and winsome and inviting. We are called actually to deal with people in kindness, in gentleness. We are called, as we often say in this church, to move toward people, even if it feels like we're moving away from their worldview at the same time. So how do we do this as a church with those last two categories combined, right? As a community and also a community that is set out on this particular mission to winsomely and wisely engage the people around us. Well, here's a phrase we also throw around a lot, is that we would like to function as a family expecting guests. A family expecting guests. So you want everything that looks like a family, that tight-knit bond the love for one another, 
the time spent together, the life lived together. But of course, that family is always looking outward, always expecting others to come in. There's always the hope that somebody is going to show up on the front porch. And so the front porch light is always left on because you want people to come in and your radar is always up for that new person to come in so that they might be not only welcomed, but might become part of the family as well. That's what we're called to, to be a family together who is always facing outward, expecting guests. So there's three things that your elders are called to lead in, prayer, community, and mission. But let me finish with this, is that none of those can be accomplished if they're not doing the primary thing, which is to lead you to Jesus. Our primary goal, our primary role, our primary responsibility is to lead you daily, hourly, steadfastly, and faithfully to Jesus, our Savior. Because it is Jesus who has actually accomplished all of these things even for us, right? Jesus is the only one who has perfectly prayed to his Father, and Jesus, we learn in Hebrews, continues to pray for us. He continues to intercede for us. And of course, Jesus, we read at the beginning of Colossians, is the head of the body, the church. So there is no community, there is no body without that head. He's the one that actually holds it all together. And Jesus, who has set out as the hero of this great mission, the hero of the story that starts when we open up the Bible and we see God create something good, and then immediately we see the conflict of human beings rebelling against him, that God sets out on a mission to redeem and renew and restore his good creation, and he sends this hero his son Jesus, to make it happen. And he has actually come to us with wisdom, perfect wisdom, right? He is, calls himself the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And with beautiful winsomeness and love to graciously, mercifully reach out to those of us who are outsiders. And by the way, those of us is all of us who are outside and to bring us inside by the cost of his own blood. Friends, as you pray, remember that this is who Jesus is and let it shape your prayers. As you gather in community, have Christ at the center of that community so that it might shape your hearts. And as you proclaim and you wisely and winsomely engage your neighbors, do so not out of compulsion, but actually responding to the great love that has been shown to you. That's what we as your officers desire for you because that's what our Lord desires for us. Let's pray. Good Father in heaven, thank you for giving your church, first of all, a king, a head, a leader of whom we all follow. Thank you, Lord, that those who are called to lead your church are called first and foremost to follow our king to kneel before him, to proclaim his goodness, his grace, his majesty, and his sovereign mercy. And Lord, will you enable us as leaders, enable us, Lord, as followers, enable all of us as followers of you to take up the work of ministry that you've put before us. Lord, you tell us in your word that ministry is not just for the religious professionals, that we are called actually to engage and empower and serve and equip the saints for the works of ministry. 
So, Lord, will you work through us to equip us all to go and do what you've called us to do? And will you center it all on the beauty of the gospel, the truth of Jesus' life and death and resurrection on our behalf? We pray this in his name. Amen.